Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Fright Night. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. <laughs> This could be the night of your life. Tonight we're covering two versions of the same splendid vampire movie. The 1985 original directed by Tom Holland and the 2011 remake directed by Craig Gillespie. They loosely follow the same story, so rather than tackling first one then the other, we will go scenario by scenario, character by character, and look at how each is presented for their era. Spoiler warnings throughout, but if you've never seen either of them, and we found out the other day that our friend Neil, who is a horror hound, had never seen either of them. Baffling. Uh, but if you've never seen either of them, you actually may be better off listening to this show first. You'll be party to all sorts of detail that will make your viewing even better. The setup runs thus for both films. Charlie is a regular high school senior with a girlfriend named Amy that he's not entirely comfortable around. A man named Jerry moves in next door and Charlie discovers to his shock that Jerry is a vampire. Jerry confronts Charlie to smugly inform him that he knows that he knows. Charlie tells his rotten friend Ed about Jerry and Ed both believes him and teases him. Along with Amy, they visit Peter Vincent, an entertainer who seems to know a lot about vampires. Turns out Peter Vincent is a fraud and won't help them. Then first Ed and then Amy get caught by Jerry and turned into vampires. The final act is Charlie and Vincent bravely venturing into Jerry's house to kill the head vampire and win back the now very toothy Amy. There's a little bit of uh, restructuring of events in the in the in the Fright Night. I'm going to call the remake the Fright Night. In the same way that I'm now going to call the 2009 film the Star Trek, just to differentiate <laughs> it. Because I'm like, you know what, Star Trek is my favorite, and people are like, what the the, the 2009 film Star Trek brackets 2009. That is a terrible name for a film. <laughs> The Star Trek. That's what you call them now. Yelchin remakes uh, always get the at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm doing from now on. Um, Godzilla, Zilla, the Godzilla. But yeah, there's, there's a little bit of uh, swapping stuff around. So Ed gets uh, vamped a lot earlier in The Fright Night. Uh, and I'm not sure. Yeah, Amy's definitely with them when they go and see Peter Vincent in The Fright Night. Is she there when they go and see him in the original Fright Night? The second uh, she, visit. Yeah, second I was going to say right. she's certainly there for one of them. Um, okay. Ed, the the showdown with Ed is different in the second one. Um, the first one, he goes up against 
uh, Peter Vincent. On oh, yeah. Own. I've got a whole list of the various changes yeah. that happened in The Fright Night. Mm. Um, but uh, let's just dive straight in rather than talking uh, especially about it. Uh, one thing I will say before we carry on. Folks on our Patreon who are at the $5 level will be listening to my uh, movie reviews uh, as we, you know, as as I, every time I got, come back from the cinema, I tell, <sighs> in or out, dog, in or out. <laughs> every time I come back from the cinema, I tell Sharon about what I've seen. And uh, the recent, one of the most recent ones was I, Tonya. And I said, Who's this director? Just like he keeps trying to be Paul Thomas Anderson and Martin Scorsese. Just find your own directorial style. That director was Craig Gillespie, uh, who I'd already seen and loved one of his movies, The Fright Night. And uh, I, I will say right now, he actually does have quite a lot of style. I, Tonya, is a bit of a grower as well. It's really unpleasant to watch, but you know, I've been thinking about it in uh, more uh, recent weeks. I still don't like it. But uh, it's uh, it grown on me more than three billboards did. So folks who've listened to uh, my scorching reviews of both uh, three billboards and I, Tonya, will uh, be happy to know that at least Craig Gillespie has come out of it smelling of roses, as has Margot Robbie as well. And Alison Jenny won a damn Oscar, so she smells lovely. The original director of Fright Night, Tom Holland, who, I mean, he's look, he has aged phenomenally. Like, he's Spider-Man now, <laughs> and he, he looks like a kid, but he... <laughs> He's actually a vampire. Maybe he met actual vampire Udo Kier at some point. I'm just an average man with an average life. So we start off with Charlie and Amy in the original version, and they're necking. And Charlie is preoccupied with what's going on next door. He gets his binoculars out, and Amy's not having it. It's weird enough that the lead character in the movie is a boy who has a girlfriend. Usually the girl is there to be one throughout the story, and, you know, she's a new girl. And usually couples in horror films are the ones who both get killed because they were committing the sin of having sex. And she says, what was that noise? And he says, nothing. And, you know. But yeah, at the beginning, Charlie somehow has a girlfriend already. He's not paying her proper attention. And it, there's this weird kind of push-pull where he says, I think we should have sex. And she goes, mm, I don't want to. And then he starts looking through his binoculars and she's like, maybe we should have sex. And he's like, mm, I don't want to. <laughs> they're not vibing at this point. They're really not. I quite like the dynamic, though. It's it's all over the place, which for teenagers trying to work out whether they're going to have sex seems quite normal. Yeah. Oh, it's accurate in that the teenage boy comes off like a complete bum. He's You're just like, you punk. The only bit that seems a little bit unnatural is the speed with which said teenage boy loses his interest in sex and is distracted by something else. <laughs> What's going on next door? I've, I've forgotten. They're, they're moving in, and, and this has been bothering me as such a nitpick, but... If you're going to have a coffin, move it in a crate. Because he sees yeah. the coffin being dragged by by the movers. He's like, mm. oh, wow, they're bringing in a coffin for some reason. And it's like, just a put it in a damn crate. Else. The ease it's the with first which clue. that incredibly shiny, polished coffin would get scratched. Oh, or yeah. have corners knocked off as they brought it upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, did we need Dracula, some protective packaging on that. Dracula put his coffin in a crate. Um, <laughs> they put they shipped uh, Dracula's coffin in a crate and Abena Costello meet Frankenstein. I don't understand why Jerry Dandridge couldn't do this. Put your coffin in a crate, fill it with soil, put it on a boat. <laughs> I can only assume Jerry got into a fight with the crate company and there was like, no more crates for you. And he's like, well, I don't have any crates big enough for my coffin, so I suppose we're carrying that one by hand. <laughs> he, does have, he does have one crate that's big enough to get a coffin in. It's full of straw and small ornaments. Yes, that's my small Leads me to believe that Jerry is just really shit at packing. <laughs> he leaves it to his familiar because he can't be bothered to pack at yeah. all. His familiar yeah, no, is grudgingly sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas at least Colin Farrell's Jerry has a skip. He's classy. Colin yeah. Farrell's Jerry does his own damn packing. Oh yeah. 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 Very, uh, very together kind of guy. So uh, Jerry is in the original um, Fright Night, played by Chris Sarandon, who uh, most people remember as Prince Humperdinck in uh, The Princess Bride. And he's just as villainous in this as he is as Humperdinck. Mm. I, I kind of wish I'd seen this earlier. The first time I ever saw Fright Night, I actually saw Fright Night too. Ooh. I think I rented it from a library or, or just... Um, a video rental place or yeah. something. Maybe I, no, it might have been when I worked at Blockbusters in, in, in uh, um, 1998. We didn't have Fright Night 2 in my Blockbuster, so I never got, I never even knew it would existed. Well, it's the other way around. For our Blockbusters, we're like, which should we get? Well, obviously Fright Night 2. That's the one we want to have. <laughs> well, nobody watches the, the most... first one. They confused it with Evil Dead. Yeah. We want the most recent version of every film. In fact, you could probably do like a video rental place that only does sequels. Yeah. Do you want to rent a Final Destination? We have five. <laughs> you want Fast and Furious 8? No? Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I saw Fright Night 2, and it's not good. It is not a fun movie to watch, and it is not a great introduction to the series. It was many years before I finally saw the original Fright Night. And I loved it when I finally saw it. I was like, I'd been missing out. Because this is the sort of thing that I would have watched when I was a kid, when I saw Vamp and the Lost Boys and Layer of the White Worm. I think there might have been a vampire season. Oh. Channel 4 definitely did a vampire season at some point because I saw yeah. all of those and um, Martin as well. Yeah. And I was well into Bram Stoker's Dracula, the couple of version, and I, I, I liked Interview with a Vampire. This is, you know, slightly uh, after that. And I mean, Vamp is a bad movie in comparison to Fright Night. Oh, yeah. yeah. But it's also hilarious. It, uh, yeah. Bits. Uh, Grace Jones is 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 very creepy which is uh, the, the neck much. chewing bits are extremely gory yeah well. yeah that's uh, but that's how stuff sticks in your head when you're a kid you're like oh shit's gonna go down and then shit does go down you're like wow that was uh she was really into that huh <laughs> <laughs> it was a little overlap in my head actually between vamp and class and when we watched class the other day i was half expecting <laughs> Elizabeth B Jacqueline, Jacqueline Bissett to start chewing on Andrew McCarthy's neck. You know what? Better, <laughs> <laughs> Better movie. She's, she's Rob Lowe's mum and also a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure which is scarier. Told to be young again. And, and also, also a vampire. vampire. <laughs> anyway. So Charlie in the original Fright Night is played by... William Ragsdale. Uh, William Ragsdale, yes, uh, Charlie Brewster. I, I got to say, like, it, it could just have been his attitude to Amy, which obviously, when you're a teenage single boy, you're like, oh, you ungrateful shit. 
Um, you know, she's a girlfriend, and like uh, as soon as he stops pressurizing her, it's like it's clear that she does like him a lot. So like he doesn't come off well to begin with in in this film. He, he then has to make up quite a lot of ground to to be a, a, a likable kid. Whereas in The Fright Night, Anton Yelchin, and that is a goddamn fantastic reason to see this because mm. he's no longer with us, and it's one of his best movies. It's it's one of the few where he gets to actually star. I need to see Charlie Bartlett. That was him as well. I've subsequently seen Charlie Bartlett. It is good. You should watch it. Robert Downey Jr. is in it. And he really had a future uh, within him. The way he plays Charlie in the, the new version, he's much more Peter Parker. He's he's got uh, he's much more likable. I think it m might just come down to the fact that the way he talks to his mother, the way he talks to Amy, he's a grown up, and uh, he's already taken a lot of his responsibilities seriously. I think what what struck me as one of the identifiable differences between the two versions of the character is that Charlie in the um, in the Fright Night, Anton Yelchin, is very much a um, I'm I'm going to say person and. There's a reason for that. Um, with his foot, with with his feet, one in either camp mm. on certain sides of several lines. He is one foot in a boy and one foot in a man. He's one foot in um, ostracized and isolated, and one foot in popular. Um, he's clearly torn between two worlds in loads of different circumstances and so having finding himself in between that that sort of shade between daylight humans and nighttime vampires seems quite natural hmm. um, whereas the in the original um charlie is an oblivious kid very much an oblivious kid yeah, yeah. who just gets dropped into this ridiculous situation which is far too old for him oh yeah he's a mook yeah. It's amazing he survives this. And I think he has no you, special skills. If you look the the sort of the classic representation of the vampire, the, the the vampire is always a monster who has represented sex and specifically a kind of sex which the people in the story are not ready for. Mm. It's it's actually a really, really good framing device for the first film, for the original film, and that's oh, yeah. that's one of the reasons why I really like it, because ultimately this is a world that Charlie has no no business being part of mm. um and um and and him actually being able to involve himself in that world at win um in the unlikeliest of scenarios mm. um is actually quite a heartwarming story um but i was we were watching the um the original and i was like hmm i wonder if they're going to play up the homoerotic overtones in yep <laughs> They kind of did, <laughs> and and the fright night they really did. I we were discussing this actually, and uh, talking about um, I don't know if you've ever watched uh, the the series uh, Vampire Reviews, um, Maven of the Eventide. Uh, she was talking about she talked about both versions, and her theory is that the new one is a deconstruction of coolness. And when we watched it, just, you know, two, what was it, Thursday night? Thursday night, yeah. yeah. The new, we watched the news on Thursday night. Um, we said, I, I said, it's not so much that as it is, it's a deconstruction of masculinity, especially toxic masculinity. Which makes sense as the screenwriter was Marty Noxon, who has been deconstructing toxic masculinity for quite some time. Through the lens of vampires, no less. Yeah. yeah. 
on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, folks. Yeah. So, uh, um, so in, case, in case anybody like me was staring at the name going, I know that name. Why do I know that name? Yeah. <laughs> That's why you know that name. Um, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Debbie. Um, it, it is a deconstruction of, of masculinity and, and particularly, I think, masculine sexiness. The idea of what about masculinity is appealing. And I think particularly in the juxtaposition between Jerry and Vincent, which you really don't get any of in the original because Vincent is just this old, gentle guy um, who is... Yeah, he's he's Ronnie McDowell. (laughs) What more can you say? You know, you just look at him and he's like... He might as well have harmless tattooed on his forehead. <laughs> uh, one thing that uh, the Maven said, and I kind of want to jump off though, that I thought was kind of interesting, is the idea that if you look at who the original Fright Night was made for, which was people who loved classic horror, specifically vampire horror, that was falling out of fashion, mm. very geeky people, and that's basically who Charlie is. He is the geek with special knowledge about vampires. And that helps him to get through. It's the viewer of the time who has been starved for this type of movie for, at that point, several years. Because it was just falling out of vogue. Yeah. One of the things that I I like about the the remake as well is is the presentation of Amy um, and uh, the fact that she is the the gorgeous blonde, but she doesn't behave like the gorgeous blonde. Do you mean in The Fright Night? Yeah. In The Fright Night, yeah. 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 See, I yeah. was, I liked her as a character, but I also wasn't sure what, I was a little uncomfortable with her because she's the gorgeous blonde who doesn't get hung up on looks or popularity. She's very much the geek male uh, fantasy there. Oh yeah, she's she, ideal. Yeah. Yeah, but that I think there is a, a measure of deconstruction that goes on around that by the fact that that Jerry's attitude to quote unquote that kind of girl is immediately repugnant. Yeah, <laughs> that conversation about you know there's there's <clears throat> women who look a certain way they you have to they, they have what he says men. they have to be hand managed. That's it. Mm. Yeah, they need to be managed. You know what, dude. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's so an MRA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jerry yeah, and yeah. is completely an MRA. Yeah. Absolutely. It's... And guess what? He can only come in if you invite him, much like an MRA. <laughs> <laughs> also, he only deserves a five-pack. Six-pack is, mm. is too good for him. <laughs> Indeed, um, but um, but yeah, the, the, there isn't really much of that in the original movie. It's it's if it's deconstructing anything, like you said, it's it's that classic vampire movie, um, maybe with a little bit of, of the Frankenstein movie thrown in as well. That mm. sort of the mysterious house on the mysterious hill where mysterious Igor does mysterious things, <laughs> which also makes it a little bit like uh, jo- the Joe Dante film The Burbs, mm. where uh, Tom Hanks is watching his creepy neighbor next door moving in and he's like well I'm sure there's something going on there but the burb spends the whole time keeping you guessing as to what's going on in this weird house and then reveals at the end whereas this is like oh, from the get go yeah he's a vampire mm. the, you know. yeah see honestly I think they could have held that in suspense a little bit longer mm. they, they really dropped the reveal that yes he is a vampire ladies and gentlemen way too quickly I agree I I, I was like really dude you're you're gonna bite a chick on the neck and you're gonna leave the shades open 
Really? Yeah, you are very bad at this. Jer- Jerry in both films is very bad at keeping his vampiric secret. He seems very relaxed about it as well. Like, listen, I've killed lots of policemen before. I'll do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's and it's and particularly since the, the something that that both versions have in common, and actually do really well, and actually do better than a lot of horror movies that were trying to do this deliberately, is that sense of suburban dread. Mm. Do you know what I mean by that? We talked about it when we did the Halloween show. Yeah, yeah. exactly. This this idea that behind the white picket fences and the perfect front doors and the manicured hedges, shit's going down. Mm. And it it goes down because everybody is ignoring each other, because people aren't paying attention to what's happening with their neighbours, because they're so busy maintaining their own privacy that they end up ignoring the the harm that's going on behind closed doors uh, but at the same time there's this sort of everybody's nosing in on everybody's business it's it's a really weird sort of clash of of things that's happening and jerry in the middle of all this in the first one just seems like he's really bad at living in the suburbs yeah like is this the first time you've tried this do you know what it is to have neighbors yeah they're gonna notice bats coming and going coffins i took it in the new one i took it as a definite comment on you know alpha male privilege the way he's like you know he bites the two kids in the car you know out out on the street and he's figuring yeah. nobody's gonna think too much of it. Jerry's a big campaigner for the redistribution of necks. <laughs> thank you, thank you, I'm here all week. And that, particularly in the sense that um, that Dave Franco at that point is the alpha male at school, at this point it's become a game of conkers. I'm more alpha than you are. Mm-hmm. Charlie has a friend called Ed, or Evil, or Evil Ed. And in the first uh, Fright Night, uh, he's played by... Uh, Stephen Jeffries, and at uh, the uh, the Fright Night, he's played by um, Christopher Mintz Plus, um, who you may remember from Kickass as Red Mist, followed by Kickass Two, where he played the motherfucker. <laughs> he was also uh, McLovin in um, Superbad, uh, Super yeah, and and kind of got typecast as the sort of the uh, the, the, the somewhat awkward uh, and. You know, the breakout teen, the, the the one who rails against his position, and uh, yet the the original um, Ed, uh, he's doing something completely fucking nuts, and it feels like <clears throat> maybe he started doing it in the audition, or maybe he started doing it on film. <laughs> and Tom Holland just went, "Yeah, carry on with that," and he's like, "Oh, you were so cool." He's screeching, gurning and grinning and making it like making himself really obnoxious. And it's made clear in both films that Ed is ostracized at school. Like no one really like he's an outcast. But what both films seem to make really clear is Ed is an outcast because he's an asshole. Uh, You know, he's mean and teases uh, people. And while he also hurts because he's lonely, he can't and doesn't seem to have any particular interest in controlling himself and actually just being a decent guy. He really struggles with human interaction and in both cases that is Jerry's in. Um, there's way more is made of it in um, in The Fright Night and to extremely good effect. I really, really like that scene. Yeah, I, I, the swimming pool. Yeah. I question whether Ed in the first one is actually shown to be 
an outcast because we don't really see much of him in advance. Uh, the 2011, yeah. I think, does a better job of establishing that Ant's life is shit. And the yeah. idea of being a, a vampire hunter is probably a lot better and even feasibly easier than getting through a school day without misery. And I can't, you know, talking about it, Charlie in, in the new one is kind of an asshole. But at the same time, I can see why, you know, he he's growing up. He's growing up and he wants, you know, he wants to have a life and he wants to have other friends. And I see why he kind of abandoned Ed. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot more pressure in the uh, the in the Fright Night because they they have a mutual friend that they used to hang out with a lot who is killed at the beginning. That's a new addition to the film. That immediately puts tension on them in that they are both feeling kind of guilty that they weren't together. Like mm -hmm. it's it's never really spoken, but there seems to be an idea that if all three of them were together at that point, then is it Adam? Yeah, Adam. yeah, Adam would not have been killed by whatever killed him, which uh, Ed is chasing. Uh, turns out to be a, a vampire. Charlie kind of doesn't really want anything to do with either of them anymore. He's he's yeah. just you know, he's trying to be quote unquote normal. Yeah, I like one thing that I particularly liked is that Ed trying to blackmail um, Charlie <laughs> with the video. Squid Man. Yeah, Squid Man, yeah. <laughs> Squid Man and the Gladiator and all. And it's them playing. Is it? Like, would that would that constitute LARP? I wouldn't call that LARP. No, I would just say backyard wrestling. Yeah, it's just it's you know an early movie. Like I'm, I'm sure you had a thousand of those growing up. I know I did. <laughs> or you made a bunch yes, of that's... movies in the backyard. My movies were with bamboo, kendo, shinai sticks, and Jewel of the Fates, so that we could do the whole Phantom Menace thing. Cool. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. So, I like, I yeah, like so, that that was supposed to be the blackmail thing, but you could tell that Charlie also, it made him feel guilty because of these friendships that he left behind, and that's what propelled him to meet up with Ed. I don't think the movie makes a judgment on whether Charlie was wrong to uh, to, to leave Ed behind. I think it's, I think it kind of points out that had he stuck around with Ed, he'd have at least had a friend, they'd have had friends together, but also that Ed's very much standing still like he kind of doesn't want to progress beyond where he is mm. yeah does that make sense yeah 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 it does. and the the original ed is is you could level that at him as well he is kind of childish he's kind of childish <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> was he supposed to be high i'm not sure it <laughs> seems like he's high the whole time <laughs> he's like this girding jabbering like twitching creep of a boy yeah and and he's this if you if you're looking at these as um sort of parables on the different versions of masculinity that are available in these little suburbs ed is the one that doesn't fit but through no choice of his own if that makes sense he he doesn't fit he doesn't even attempt to fit mm. but that there is an element of resentment over the fact that he doesn't fit yeah. Yeah. he's convinced himself that he's better than everybody else because it's too painful to admit, yeah it's yeah. too painful to admit otherwise and mm. as a result he's sort of stuck in this very sort of immature version of boyhood slash manhood I was saying, that makes him perfect prey for Jerry, who sounds like an MRA or a PUA online when he's talking to him in the pool. Yeah. 
absolutely. Um, or or uh, just somebody who's grooming him for for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the element of Ed that I find the most um, heartbreaking is that he doesn't know how to do anything other than to latch on to this one friend. Yeah. And when that one friend pushes him away, he falls to pieces. Yeah, he's got nothing left. And the 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 rope of vampirism that is is kind of thrown to him when he's in that situation of of having been abandoned in the first one it's it's quicker um but he's on his own because charlie had to walk amy home yeah so he ends up going through a dark alleyway by himself and that's when jerry pounces on him well charlie told him not to do that just walk with us it's not that charlie was saying hey ed get out of here i need some alone time with amy he specifically told him don't do that but Ed's a fucking idiot. Yes, Ed's made it a zero-sum game. It's it's me or her. Yeah. Uh, he never. I don't think he ever really makes that statement. But his actions suggest that uh, because Charlie has elected to go with her, then that that means that he has to be. I am Ed alone. Eighty <laughs> growing up. Again, the the vampires are about um, sexuality and levels of maturity and levels of comprehension about the the outside world. And the the girls are the, for want of a better term, natural progression of teenage mm. boys becoming adults. Does that mean that Ed is Charlie's Renfield? Master, you promised me eternal life, but you give it to the pretty woman. <laughs> Pretty much. Like, yeah, Renfield is the, is the cast-off in Dracula. He's yeah. the one that Dracula no longer leads. Yeah. Well, in, in the, uh, he's a lunatic. Is he, is he in... Incarcerated in uh, the asylum in the book. Yes, yeah, yeah he is. Yeah. He's played by um, Tom Waits, Waits. in uh, uh, Dracula. Oh, yeah, Christopher Lee, a uh, uh, wonderful, wonderful gentleman. I believe they tie him to the bars of the window at one point. Yes. He is gloriously over the top. We'll and do a show on the Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's my favourite. Very favorite reminiscent film. of the original Ed, to yeah. be fair. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> The Fright Night, you get Dave Franco as Mark, who's kind of uh, juxtaposed against Ed as the cool kid. He's the one with the, the status. He's not ruling the school, but he seems to be someone that Charlie looks to sort of like, if I could just act like I don't care about anything, then I could maybe be like this guy. Yeah. Which yeah. is... Ed, I, I do wonder, though, if part of the whole him having to socialise with the popular crowd is a, a bit of a tax that he pays for the... the being with Amy because mm. these are her friends and if he wants to hang around with her he's got to hang around with them um, I mean there there is no parallel for that character in the original is there Hey mom Hey just checking in What you up to? Uh Adam Johnson Adam You know Adam's missing right? Right, kids aren't coming to school. It happens all the time. I don't know if you're paying attention to roll call, but he's not the only one that's gone. You're nuts. This is my son, Charlie, and his girlfriend. Hi. So Jerry is our new neighbor. Hey. Hey. Now listen to me. We draft up all the disappearances. That's you right there in the center next to his house. I really hate to be the one to tell you this, but that guy, your neighbor? Jerry. Yeah, he's a vampire. <laughs> that is a terrible vampire name. Jerry? Hey guy, you've been watching me. I've been watching you. Your mom, but there's a kind of uh, neglect, gives off a scent. And your girl, she's ripe. 
It's on you to look out for them. Because there are a lot of bad people out there, Charlie. What's that? I'm gonna end him or he's gonna end me. That's how it's gonna be. Okay, right. In the remake, when we begin, it's Adam, this this uh, third friend that we, I mentioned before. Uh, we begin in his house and he's panicking because something is in the house and it's killed his parents. And he runs to the his father's bedroom and his father's dead on the ground. And he goes under the bed and uh, tries to get the revolver out. And there's a lock on the revolver. And it's a weird instance of... His father was actually responsible with this home defense. Mm -hmm. He actually went out of his way to make this gun difficult to find for a kid, definitely difficult to operate for a kid. Adam has to prize the key out of his dead father's pocket. It's as grim as hell to try and unlock this thing. And then the vampire takes the the lock away and you can just see that hand. Now the hand is kind of how Jerry is introduced in the original Frightener. There's a lot of dwelling on his big old, big horny hand. So it's fingernails, particularly. Yes. They are they, again this whole masculinity thing. Those long, pointed fingernails are not masculine. No, they're feminine too. So yeah, you've got this this weird scenario of, of parental responsibility actually making it harder for his child to survive. Not that just shooting Jerry with bullets would actually have done anything no no they wouldn't necessarily but again it's that that symbolic element of mm. you are in a world that's too old for you yeah you don't have the defenses to be able to deal with this but when jerry in the original uh, talks to charlie he's very kind of uh, like he he eats apples and slowly looks at him with a kind of a smirk and then he talks to him in a sort of very matter-of-fact way and he's very much kind of the count who has moved in next door and He's, you know, positioned as the sort of the, the the European fellow who is, you know, exotic and interesting and women find him attractive and he gets a woman back to his place. And he's got he's like he's very much a grown up. And that's kind of how he stays the whole way through, even when he turns into a monster. When Ed in The Fright Night talks about him and he name checks him and says, this guy is the shark from Jaws. That is really how they positioned the new version of Jerry. It is actually a different character. It's it's a refined, much more dangerous, sadistic. He's a psychopath. The thing that they take away from this new Jerry that was definitely present in the older one is making him sexy for the ladies or, or, or for men who are particularly in, in that way inclined. The... Um, the original Chris Sarand and Jerry is sexed up. Like yeah. he's alluring. There's something about him that you're like, oh, that's nice for this new Jerry. While they might, might start out going, hey, Colin Farrell, that's nice. Okay. Like, like as soon as you start to see who Jerry really is, that's gone. They don't even try to entertain the idea that he might be alluring later on. Yeah. He becomes this predator. I will give you that. I, I was going to say, hang on a minute. Oh, no, but I, he's still it's Colin, Colin Farrell. Farrell yeah. Or Chris Sarandon in a fishing jumper. Okay. But that's, that is a sexy fishing jumper and red scarf combo. It's painted as a sexy fishing jumper. Okay. There is no such thing as a sexy Whether they succeed, Whether they succeed in trying to make Chris Sarandon look sexier than he actually might be in yeah. that jumper, or whether whether they succeed in trying not to make Colin Farrell look sexy, and in fact he yeah. is sexy. No, I, I do get the what you The bent of both films is they push towards with the first one,
one and then they de- deliberately push away with this with the fright mode, absolutely the, the I, I actually think both of them I would say fall down, but I don't necessarily think it's what they were trying to accomplish. But I I don't think either of them particularly present these um, examples of masculinity. It's not done with the female gaze in mind. Hmm. There isn't really anyone Mm. that I would say is presented in such a way as to be appealing to the female eye. Except. Except. David Tennant. Yeah. <laughs> no. Oh, you not going to say that? Not what I was going to say. Anton Yelchin? Anton Yelchin. He is not <laughs> Okay, so in that way, they do fall down because they make the guy who's supposed to be paranoid about his sexy new neighbour actually a lot sexier. But but the thing is, no, where I was going with that, there was a point to the end of that sentence. Anton Yelchin and, and this version of Charlie is in the middle of all of this fakeness and insincerity mm. and staged... I'm a bloke I am, or I'm a sexy bloke I am, or, or I'm a brave and, and fighting bloke I am. Or specifically the suburbs in the middle of the desert. This is a house, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Right, so you've got this lovely sort of lush little block of houses and then nothing for 10,000 miles in every Just direction. Rock. It's like yeah. a suburb on Mars. Absolutely. <laughs> in the midst of all this... I keep wanting to say in the midst of all this death, but no, that's... <laughs> Don't be away from all this death. That's yeah, that's Bram Dracula. Um, in the midst of all this insincerity and and fakeness, he mm. is authentic. He's confused, mm. but he's authentic. In a he's... way, the original Charlie isn't. Yeah. Exactly. He's, he is at least genuine, and he is at least trying to be himself mm. as soon as he works out who himself is, he's, which yeah. for a teenager... That is normal. That is totally normal. Yeah. To not know who you are when you're 17 is the standard. Some of Everybody... the most interesting 40-year-olds I know still don't. Well, yeah. exactly. Every 17-year-old or, or even 18, 19, 20-year-old who is freaking out because they don't know who they are, that's all of us. Yeah. It, don't panic. It'll <laughs> <Yeah>. pass. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I very much like about Charlie is that they make a point that until Jerry shows up, he's actually fairly secure in what he believes to be his masculinity. And I think that's a good thing. And it's Jerry coming in that starts to throw that into doubt for him until he realizes, yeah, Jerry's just a flat-out monster. Uh, the the thing you mentioned about the male gaze, you're, you're right. It's not specifically, ooh, look at Chris Sarandon, he's sexy. It's, ooh, look at that guy over there, Chris Sarandon. Oh, I can't believe any girl would find me sexy when they have someone like this around. He wanders around with his chest out. He's got girls just dripping off him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the whole of the beginning premise of both films is a sexy man moved in next door and he's getting all the tail. And I can't even get my yes, girlfriend to have sex with me. He's eating all the tail, and your girlfriend was trying to have sex with you. <laughs> yeah. Watching him eating all the tail. <laughs> Colin Farrell's uh, Jerry, the other major difference between the two of them, and I think it's it's still there in the original Fright Night, but they really focus on it for this one. It is a campfire story and it is actually an ancient campfire story it is the story of 
the prowling thing outside the fire circle, outside of home, because home comes into this film repeatedly, the boundaries of the home and territory, and a man must defend his home. Because as soon as you step out of that and into the darkness, the vampire can get you straight away. You go into someone else's house, you shouldn't be there. The vampire can get you straight away. Mm. It is a tale told by Grug in The Croods about a boy who went outside the fire circle and immediately got eaten by a vampire. Mm. Well, this is, I, I said this, didn't I? The, the, the werewolf tale is don't leave the, the fire circle, otherwise the things in the forest will get you. Yeah. The vampire story is don't invite the things in the forest into yeah. the fire circle because this is where you're safe. And both of those monsters are transformative. If they get you, they don't just kill you, mm. you will become them. Yeah. And there, there is a really fantastic scene in, in The Fright Night where uh, Jerry just sort of turns up outside the uh, threshold and asks to borrow a six-pack of beer. And it's just it's just a borrowing a six-pack of beer six scene. Beer. And the tension between them, where it, I mean, this is the equivalent of the I know that you know that I'm a vampire scene. And Jerry's just kind of feeling him out, fucking with his head. And I think at this point he's actually already killed Ed, hasn't he? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So uh, he's he's well aware uh, he's been spied upon by Ed and that Ed probably told Charlie and that Charlie's been spying on him. He doesn't seem to be desperate to kill him. There's something very patient about Jerry in both versions. He bides his time and he seems to be toying with Charlie in control, which again makes him more intimidating. And I suppose actually that's, you know, we, we query why they, they drop the bombshell that yes, Jerry actually is a vampire too quickly in both versions, mm. but there is a reason for that. It's so that you get that prolonged period of, I know, mm. and I know that you know, and I know that you know that I well, know. Well, you get that, and... is, is he the head vampire thing in uh, Lost Boys? Mm. And it's like, we're full of garlic, I like garlic, but, mm. uh, you yeah. know, but then it, it turns out that... Uh, uh, if you invite them in, then the, the, your Red powers are weak again. Yeah, what you've got to remember is that with the Lost Boys, um, and I'm going to forget names, so you're going to have to help me out here. Uh, Michael? Yeah, Michael. Michael? Yeah. Michael is not Charlie. Mm. Corey Haim is Charlie. Yes. He's the one who knows. Yes. And therefore, any I know that you know, and you know that I know. Honestly, that you know, Michael doesn't seem to be particularly interested in the fact that Michael's the boys he's dealing with planet. are vampires. He's like, <laughs> God, they're vampires, but they've got my girl. The dude is not Heather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even know okay, should we deal with the whole vampirism thing first? Then <laughs> we'll deal with the fact that that Star has got David. I mean, the other way around. <laughs> the fact that David's trying to shut down the youth center. The Star of David. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but um, another, I think, interesting comparison though between Lost Boys and um, and Fright Night, the original, is that. Charlie also, much like Sam, feels like he was written to be younger. Mm. Like in Lost Boys, Sam was explicitly supposed to be six years old and everybody else was supposed to be under ten and everybody got written up except for him. Uh, oh, jeez. That I did not know. Yeah. We've got to get you on the Lost Boys show. <laughs> hey, I'd be happy to. I could talk about that forever. So Sam was six You mean Corey Haim was six yeah. years old? The, the, the How did you get a six-year-old to act in a film like this? They couldn't even do that in Pet Cemetery. That may be why they aged everybody up. Yeah, they looked at Pet <laughs> yeah, Cemetery and went, well, this is a disaster. A, because they wanted to be sexier because Joel Schumacher took over. And, and right. it was originally, it's partly called the Lost Boys because they were going for... They were explicitly going for um, 
uh, Peter Pan. Peter Pan imagery. Yeah, David was originally named Peter as well in that. Right. Okay. So there was like a group of ten-year-old vampires running around. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That was the original of Lost Boys, and similarly in the original Fright Night, I feel like Charlie was written to be about twelve, and then they yeah. had in the sex stuff because. He's also a kid that apparently doesn't realize that saying he's a vampire to police is not going to be helpful. <laughs> like, just running around telling people he's a vampire, he seems to think that that's not going to make him look crazy. Which you, most 16-year-olds would know better. Yeah, that, that's one of the ways that 2011, I think, improved on the formula a little bit by making Charlie know that that would be stupid. Um, yeah, it is. It is a bit unfair in the first one that that he's presented in this sort of. I I did want to have sex with my girlfriend, but in a very kind of adolescent kind of way. And then when it actually presented itself, I panicked and started focusing on the vampire next door. So it it. But the, there never seems to be that sense of we understand how he's feeling and why, which is very much in the remake. Um, it, so he just ends up coming across as a bit of a boob. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I mean, he I, is I, a boob. Yeah. I sit there and I watch Charlie in the original and I, I just get this feeling that he was supposed to be a younger character when they originally conce- conceptualized this and they forgot to age him up appropriately. Also, <laughs> that would fit with the way Ed behaves. Exactly and Ed's like, what, what am I, six? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That seems much like a 12-year-old. But then you lose that whole dynamic with Amy. And I I think this is one of the most significant differences between the two versions, is that in the original, although I stand by what I said about Chris Sarandon is is not a sexy man, um, (laughs) but... All think when Amy they think he's sexy. They think he's sexy, and that's the he thinks he's sexy, and that's the important thing. But but when when Amy gives in to him, the whole point of that segment is we as the audience at least have to understand why Amy is giving in to him. Yeah. And that has to make sense. And in the remake, because that whole the, getting why she gives herself over to him does still make the whole thing creepy and weird because she is still a 17 year old girl and he is even if you disregard the whole thousand year old vampire thing he is still like two and a half times her age whereas in the uh, in in the fright night um there is no real sense that amy is is it is up for this he he grabs her he and steals her, her. yes yeah. she is left with no choice whatsoever and neither are any of his victims there's a little bit in the original of uh, amy being frustrated and pissed off about the fact that charlie is immature mm. and so when presented with this big sexy you know adult man that the part of her actually wants to, to 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 be with him, which is not something that's in the uh, the Fright Night. Yeah, but that is more consistent with the classic Dracula and the classic yeah. portrayal of vampires. Women who are into sex are weird and strange and, and to be avoided to, to and it. are putting themselves yeah. at risk of, of being taken in by prey to foreign homosexual perverts. seducers. <laughs> uh, sorry. Second <laughs> well, gay is coming around here taking our women. <laughs> I I feel like too the thing about in the original about Chris Sarandon is you no know, I I don't think he's sexy but he is charismatic. Yeah. Which can look can look the same to a certain like immature sex. eye. <laughs> 
Would you say Gary Oldman's sexy in Bram Stoker's Dracula? No. No? Not no. in the slightest. Is he charismatic? Yeah. There you go, then. Yeah. He's still Gary Oldman. Yeah. 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 But the, what I just uh, mentioned there, that the whole coming around here taking our women thing, that is a major subtext of this. The, uh, of both films is male fear that uh, women will be taken away by a better male than you. Mm. Which is how Jerry comes on like a, a men's rights activist. But it's a weirdly opposing viewpoint. Because neither angle wants Amy to be her own woman no. and to make the decision herself. It's either for him to prey on her or, or for her to be defended by her, her boyfriend. And she's being tugged between the two of them. And at no point is, is Amy going, you know what, fuck this. I'm going to make a choice myself. Luckily, they, they do ramp up a little bit more of Imogen Poot's version of Amy's uh, agency. She does attack Jerry repeatedly with different weapons. Mm. She uh, is. I, see, I think the whole silver bullets thing should still work on vampires. Thank you. Because silver is like like blade sword is silver. Because silver is notoriously effective for destroying the undead. The reason that silver is supposed to work on monsters is because it's pure. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so she uses holy water, and then she, she uses a mace. Let's uh, a morning star at one point, and she, yeah. she and. Um, that, that she's no slouch, new Amy. I, I, I don't dislike old Amy, but I really like new Amy. Especially because, have you seen um, Centurion? No. The Michael Fassbender film. Uh, oh, she is great film. in that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she plays a, a witch of the wilds. Um, and uh, it, 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 that is a good Roman legion on the run from savage Picts movie, if you want to see one of those. Adding that to the list here. Okay. Yeah, it's it's the Neil Neil Marshall who uh, is currently uh, adapting Hellboy. Oh, oh. And uh, he did Doomsday and The Descent, which is fan fantastic, and uh, Dog Soldiers. Yeah, which is less. So. Which is less so, but The Descent <laughs> is excellent. The other really important element of Amy's character is that she makes it very clear repeatedly that she is with Charlie because she wants to be. There's, hmm. there's no sort of. Um, both Amy's. Both Amy's do that, but but. Anton Yelchin's Charlie is way more... His his underlying insecurities are more evident, mm. and so it is more necessary for her to do the reassuring thing mm. and follow that up with, I'm you know, I'm here because I want to be. It's, it's, it's because you're you. It's not because I'm looking for any specific type of, of bloke that you are fulfilling the, the pattern of. Mm. Um, and again, that, that underlines his... There's, there's a positive in his authenticity, in his being genuine. That's what appeals to her. Not that he's got a template that he is able to to fit and to stick to. I like the Amy better as a character, uh, just because from minute one, she is more interesting. But I feel that Amy 85 has more of an arc. You can, hmm. What's, the, what's her arc? Her arc is learning to actually take control of her own sexuality. Because essentially she starts out almost having sex with Charlie because he's pouting. Having metaphorical sex with um, Jerry, and which basically puts her in a position where she is only a seductress. And then by the end, she seems to have more control over when she wants to be sexy and when she doesn't want to be. Whereas this Amy doesn't really have a emotional arc of any sort. She starts out kind of as an awesome, perfect person and ends in large the same way. That could be argued, actually, as being a kind of compacted 
and much abbreviated version of a, a woman's evolving sexuality as she gets older. Yeah. yeah. Being at the mercy of teenage boys who don't really know what they want. <laughs> being attracted to older men who really do know what they want, but have a bit of a tendency to ignore what you might want and convince you that what you want is what they wanted anyway. And then coming out of all of that and going, you know what? I have completely run out of fucks. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And, <laughs> and you, you can come along if you want to, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done with trying to please everybody else. There is a uh, whole sequence, there's a couple of sequences which are exclusive to The Fright Night. Um, the one where uh, Charlie sneaks into Jerry's house to investigate and finds that uh, a girl that he saw Jerry with last night is still trapped in the house in Jerry's cupboards. He's got like a whole secret back room of uh, people that he keeps in there as food. And that's when they really turn the key on him being a stone cold psychopath. That's where, when the whole idea of, you know, uh, sexual mystique just goes out of the window. It's like, yeah, no, he's keeping these guys like snacks. He dehumanizes them and he has uh, there's this, this cold, dead-eyed, uh, smirking way that he, uh, uh, con- you know, controls her. And it's really kind of sad at the, the, the point where um, he comes in while Charlie's trying to rescue her. And Charlie hides and he bites her and she can see Charlie and she puts her finger to her lips to say shh don't move and you pointed out Sharon that she's actually being really smart there that he's her ticket out of there and she will take the being bitten again uh, in favor of keeping Charlie alive so that when he's done with her Jerry that is Charlie can get her out Mm. it's 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 quite smart on her part well and and again that's that there's an element there of, of sort of that, that kind of hints at something within abusive relationships, um, which obviously is a, a very significant part of any deconstruction of, of toxic masculinity that you're going to do. Mm. Somebody who is in a relationship where they're being abused, if a bad thing has been done to them already and they're still alive, they'll put up with that bad thing happening again. Mm. I, I did want to mention I and something that it is not really commented on and is kind of left left in the background but i'm pretty sure that woman is Mm -hmm. their neighbor it's one when charlie's walking i believe it was walking home or oh yeah 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 Yeah. she's got the uh, um she's got the something written on her booty Mm. yeah and i think it's it's hinted at Mm. that she was charlie's babysitter it does suggest that yes yeah that that does seem to be implied yes his his uh, connection to her seems to be a little bit sort of little brothery. Hmm. Yeah. Except when he's looking at her ass. Well, yeah, there is that. <laughs> but but that I think. Yeah. Indeed. But he doesn't <laughs> go. Some shit slide. He doesn't go. Exactly, yeah. He doesn't go. You've grown, my lady. Grown more beautiful. I mean. Uh... Please don't talk to me like that, Charlie. It makes me <laughs> it makes uncomfortable. Me <laughs> but, but I think actually the, the nature of that relationship is quite important when he tries to rescue her because he is doing a very, um, a, a little boy version of that. Our women have been stolen by this mm. monster and we have to go and, and save them. them. The he is, again, it comes down to this, he is as yet not capable of being the protector. Yeah. 
And it's uh, summarized when he actually does succeed in getting her outside and she explodes because the vampirism's already started to take home. She, hold on, she explodes from the stomach outwards and it's disgusting and distressing. And uh, Jerry actually lets them go and smirks about the fact of what's going to happen hmm. it's chilling yeah because yeah. he's dehumanized he's he's actually when he goes into his kind of shark-eyed mode um he's he like moves from he's never really dracula hmm. he is nosferatu yeah. yeah yeah so the other version of vampirism where it's not about sex at all it's more like they're creeping slinking vermin or a predatory fanged creature He's a little bit, a little bit like. Did you ever see Thirty Days of Night? Oh yeah. I just watched yeah. it a week or two ago, something like that. Yes. Yeah. So there's that same kind of black-eyed thing with with those guys, but the, the the way that Danny Houston and company in that film play it, it's really unsettling and creepy. They're def again, they're very much like sharks who have arranged to meet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they specifically have shark-like mouths in both yeah. versions, which and I black love. Eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And he reminds me a little bit as well of the vampires in Near Dark. Yeah. Although they're much more... Finger-licking um, good. Yeah, they're they're so sadistic yeah. and so trailer park. Which I... No, they're so trailer park. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, Quaffing on brandy. They really wouldn't blend in in the suburbs. <laughs> I really wondered how those... How it Just a side note on Near Dark is... How did have these guys gotten away with this for so long? They are so... Like, they burned down a bar. They This would have been noticed. Yeah. It's like Jerry. They just... If you don't care, nobody else does, apparently. I really don't like Near Dark. I've heard over and over again what a masterpiece it is. I've tried... From I've, me, I might I've add. sat and watched it three or four times. I own it. Mm. Um, but like there was a there was a crappy Fright Night 2 following the original uh, uh, film, and that's not worth seeing. And then there was a really crappy Fright Night 2, like sci-fi movie original uh, that has nothing to do with the, the Fright Night and should be avoided like bubonic plague. Oh, it looks so cheap and terrible. Oh, there's a Bollywood remake. <laughs> okay, I kind of want to watch that now. I also would like to see it, but it doesn't have its own Wikipedia page. Uh, Let's see if we can find that boo. somewhere. Boo! This girl tonight, she's a handful. You know? Women who look a certain way, they... <laughs> they need to be managed. It's true. Your dad ducked out on you, huh? Your mom, she didn't exactly say, but... Uh, it was a kind of neglect. Gives off a scent. You don't mind my saying you got a lot on your shoulders for a kid. The two of you, alone, and your girl, Amy, she's ripe. I bet there's a line of guys dying to pluck that. Your mom, too. You don't see it. Maybe you do, but she's putting it out. It's on you to look out for them. You up for that guy? 
think I can manage. Good. Because there are a lot of bad people out there, Charlie. Everyone's got to look after his own business. Another new sequence in The Fright Night is they hide from Jerry in their house and go, aha, you can't get in. And he, unlike the original Jerry, is like, nah, fuck that. It's null and void if there is no house to hide in. And he you know, rips up the gas main and destroys their kitchen and they have to escape in the car. And then he gives Chase like the T-1000. It's a really kind of pumping sequence, especially if you've seen the original and you're like, well, where are they going with this? I think the the emphasis, one of the things that I, I really appreciated about the, the remake was the emphasis on what the territory is. Yeah. Because in the original, the territory is very much the women. Mm. Amy is the territory. His mom is the territory. They're what's being fought over. Yeah. And ugh, ugh, not so keen on that. In the 2011 version. The Fright Night. The Fright Night. Nope. Well, get used to it. <laughs> um, a lot. Are you going to go in and edit IMDb so that that's what it says? Yes. Yeah. Um, and every Blu-ray cover with a biro. <laughs> they, they shift the idea of territory to the house, which is really logical. Hmm. It, it makes absolute sense. You've got this emphasis of um, the their house, the house that... Um, uh, Charlie shares with his mum. Uh, there's a, an emphasis of, of the threshold of his room, that his room is his own space that people can only come into if they're invited. Mm. You've got, um, after the house is blown up, you've got the car as then territory, which gets invaded in its own way as well. Mm. Um, and the same thing happens to um, uh, Chris Sarandon playing the, the motorist. He mm. is extracted from his yeah. vehicle mm. territory. That's um, and then you've got, um, when, they, when they go to see Peter Vincent there's this emphasis on you know this is my space this is my territory um, he says to, uh, to them at one point get the fuck out of my house and I'm looking at it going Roddy this McDowell is not a house that. this is a museum yeah you know, to himself a, yeah exactly yeah. it's fine his house is the panic room yeah, yeah. that's his yeah. space that's where he retreats to um, and and this sort of this this whole idea of of personal space and who you are and how that's presented in in your surroundings and I just think that's a really good lens to look at through. And Jane, as a uh, real estate agent, is literally the purveyor of territory. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And she's also the bearer of stakes. The first thing yeah. you ever see is <laughs> bringing out these uh, signs, and and she's got a stake. It's Chekhov stake because she ends up staking Jerry with it later on, although not to yeah. the heart. To save Chekhov. And, ah. and uh, the, the the effects where he's like been staked and he's juddering around on the road is really creepy. I don't know how they do that. Yeah. It might just be as simple as Colin Farrell jerked himself about a lot and it was uh, uneven and, and uh, disconcerting to watch. But it's it's actually more effective than the head morphing uh, effects, which is uh, it, it looks like what Buffy the Vampire Slayer would look like in 2011. Yeah. It reminded they, they, me a lot of um, the transformation sequences in Train to Busan, actually, when the mm. corpses are getting up and it's just this very unnatural, jerky movement. 
<laughs> We've got to see that. It's on Amazon Prime. Oh, yeah, you'll love it. It's really good. It did occur to me that it would have been a nice... Well, not really nice. It would have been a... Nasty. It would have been a twist I would have liked to see, but it would have been very cheap, and people would have gone, ah... Oh, if he'd morphed into Chris Sarandon? No, no. <laughs> turned out to be original Amy, and she's like, hey, this shit's not going down again in my house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I really like Tony Collette in everything, yes. and like I said earlier, the, the, the rapport she has with Charlie really makes her like... I had just come back from seeing um, Ladybird when we uh, saw uh, um, uh, The Fright Night, and I, I was like, wow, this mum has no problems at all with her really nice son. Like, Laurie Metcalf is watching this movie and drooling at the position of being a mum with no problems at all. <laughs> Oh, my son, here's his gorgeous girlfriend, and he's really well adjusted. Okay, off to college, sweetie, and that's it. <laughs> I, uh, his friends are being eaten by vampires. Well, you can't win them all. Yeah. <laughs> I still think this evens out as a win. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I love the fact that in the scene where, where Charlie's telling her, you know, don't open the door to Jerry, don't open the door, she trusts him. She doesn't believe him, but she trusts him. Yeah. Also, that chase sequence, I think it's magnificent that it is one shot and the camera is just moving around, basically from the point that they leave the garage to the point that they hit Jerry. Yeah, it's uh, uh, it's very much an Alfonso Cuaron in um, Children of Men type shot, and yeah. you can see how they did it with a very carefully rigged up um, car set, where, you know, with green screen, but it does sell that sense of motion, at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, there's this sort of like you know rising panic and the like, like sudden things burst through and, and it, it keeps you guessing in a way that I'm sure that all of those kids watching Final Destination Five in the next theatre were uh, you know probably enjoying something similar. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. That that exciting shot reverse shot. I'm sure they got quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but there, there he is. That's uh, the uh, director Craig Gillespie trying to find his own uh, style. Mm-hmm. Alfonso Cuarón's. <laughs> I'm sorry, that sounds so barbed. I, I really, really like his work in, in uh, Fright Night, uh, The Fright Night. It looks spectacular in HD, by the way. I would recommend if you're going to get hold of this. I'm now at the point, and this is going to sound really snobbish, but I, I'm having to double think, do I get this on DVD? I, mean, I know it's really cheap, but like, is it not just worth paying a bit extra and getting the Blu-ray? I don't want my Blu-ray collection to get too big because it's already spilling off it's, the last shelf yeah i was gonna say we're, we're a foot away from I'm, being an entire wall i know <laughs> we're gonna have to start breaking down some of the less important blu-rays into folders as well but yeah no seriously because like you think about moving forwards what I, I just it's the phrase less important blu-rays whoa, whoa, whoa. We bought them which on are the less important we love <laughs> But uh, but yeah no it, uh, like I got crazy stupid love the other day and I was like okay so it's like one pound fifty on DVD or three pounds on Blu- Blu-ray yeah <laughs> got crazy stupid love and we haven't watched it yet yeah <laughs> hasn't arrived yet you oh that would be why then sure. I was gonna say you're sort of... denying me Ryan Gosling in HD it's like he's photoshopped <laughs> oh, no I that was one of the greatest scenes in any film ever yeah. It's now been a long time since HD entered the market. 2005 was when I think we first got, like, Gears of War was the first HD game that I looked at on an HD TV and went, yeah, this is a step up. And 
now 13 years after after that to to be able to look at an old ass sd dvd it just it doesn't make films look the, good the anymore the quality to me. in some of the older dvds oh yeah the 90s it's ones just, is foul staring at it going this is so blurry yeah. well, it's, is this is this vhs i checked the difference between the the thing that i i had uh, which i've kept the dvd for because it's got some extras which aren't on the uh, blu-ray that it's the old laser disc, so it's the boxy inside a box, mm. and it looks shit. Because I then immediately put on the blue, and I was like, just the helicopter flying over this expanse of of ice suddenly becomes epic and awe-inspiring. It now feels like, like if we're we're ever going to review anything, mm. we can't not see it in HD. Yeah. Like it's we owe it to ourselves, even if we don't like the film, to get hold of the Blu-ray. Mm. Yeah. Now, here's my question about that. Does that, with some of the older movies, does that look a little too good and make it a little, um, like, make the flaws a little too apparent? Soap opera effect. Yeah. Sometimes? Well, in, in like, really super-duper fancy HD. Like, where you can see the seams on the uh, practical effects sometimes, yeah. I don't think But that that adds to their charm for me. I was just going to say, that doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing. I I know what you mean about sort of soap opera stuff. We've done everything we can to our TV to to minimize uh, soap opera. (laughs) Um, And honestly, when you're watching films it's nowhere near as much of an issue uh, than if you're watching, say for example, YouTube videos. If you're watching YouTube videos of brand new movies, uh, like trailers, trailers of brand new movies, and you get soap opera, soap opera effect, effect, it's awful. Oh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm sitting there watching, I don't know, Infinity War, and it's like, was, sorry, was this the backstage stuff? This looks awful. It doesn't yeah. even look like a film sliding around looking horribly unnatural which is ironic since they're actually moving more naturally than yeah, they, they would absolutely wouldn't. it's like it's more real than real mm. if i wanted real i actually no i was about to say if i wanted real i'd be stood in the same room with chris evans that was a ridiculous <laughs> thing you want real you want real and can I'll i stand real, beside yes, you please <laughs> okay but um the, the era that really doesn't work in hd is late 90s and through the early 2000s because mm. the early digital effects look like shit. Yes, we watched uh, the 98 Godzilla the other day for our uh, oh. Godzilla podcast and there's a there's there's bits <laughs> with flames in there that just it I can see that this is not real and unlike old practical effects where you can see that they have lovingly made this disgusting pig dog thing to then explode <laughs> or you know cover your actors in guts. Uh, instead, they've just like thrown together this polygonal fire, and it looks terrible. Mm. And that's it, it's and and when you have a monster that you can plainly see is like painted onto the screen and yeah. is not in any way in contact with your actors. Yeah, but uh, here's the thing: we've got fantastic effects now. And we used to have fantastic effects in the 80s through to the so they're early 90s. And then there had to be a period of training where everybody went from practical to CG and started learning the ropes. Yeah. And unfortunately, that ended, gave us nearly two decades worth of films that looked like ass. <laughs> Not all of them. The absolute cream of the crop still look great. But the just standard films don't in a way that standard films now kind of do. I want to say it's mainly a marketing thing. Mm-hmm. This idea of we have constantly improving effects. Like when you're doing practical effects, 
there's only so good that you can get it mm. before it actually looks real. Yeah. You then cannot improve on it. If you do anything more to it, it's going to start looking shit again. Well, ultimately, yeah, with practical effects, you then got to like pull back from yeah. going over the top. Exactly. Yeah. And the same thing is now happening with, with CG. You get up to the point where everybody's like, right, okay, it's now photorealistic. It's as real as we can get it. Mm. Now what do we do? Well, it comes down to, like, at this stage, now you, your effects look really good. Focus on the rest, everything around them. That'll make the movies really, really good. Mm. I know it yeah. sounds silly. Yeah. But that leads us very neatly on to a discussion about the practical effects in uh, this, because Amy, in particular, uh, does anyone know where the Amy makeup came from? This was an early monster from a different film, which they ended up not using it for. Um... Because it was too scary. Oh, this is the, was... the great lady from Ghostbusters. Yeah, it's the, uh, the 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 librarian ghost in Ghostbusters. Yeah, Amy when she goes full on rah that that scary ass face. And folks, if you've never seen this film, just Google images Fright Night Amy, and you'll get Imogen Poots, but you'll mainly get this early version. It will make you shit your pants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Wow. Honestly, when it's moving around. It's a bit less scary than when it's just in a, a, a still image. But I'm just gonna, just to, for effect, Sharon, just a uh, fright night, Amy, because it is a prosthetic, a prosthesis they put on uh, this actress's face. And Amanda Beers, who is very game for being a vampire, look at that. Ah. Jesus, it's it's clear to see what they've done. The extra work around her eyes to make them look particularly inhuman. There's sort of these dark shadowed, sunken skeletal black eye sockets with flared orange red eyes. And this is like, you know, ancient theatrical uh, tricks to make her look the way she does there. But uh, it's like they've disfigured her face and uh, made her into this like sort of yawning grin. That would have been the library ghost and it would have made children shit their pants. Yeah, at the very beginning of the film. Yeah. And then you've got kids crying and unable to sit still for the whole way through. So they turned it into more of a sort of a decrepit monkey skeleton instead. Yeah. Uh, now you juxtapose that with Imogen Poot's version of Amy, uh, where they, let's see, front at 2011, Amy. And it's kind of the same face, but it looks like every scary face in every PG-13 ghost movie. Well, and keep in mind too, I saw this in the theaters, the new one, and this was especially designed, they were aiming for the 3D crowd. Yeah. There are a few bits where it throws a paint can into the screen and goes in 3D! Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, Imogen Poots is basically just the mouth, mm. whereas um, Amy85 uh, looks a lot, particularly around the eyes, it looks like the eyeballs are loose in, the, in their sockets. Yeah. And that, that's I mean, part of what gets me about it, is that it looks like her eyes are just rolling around in there. Yeah. More like a Beetlejuice thing, almost. It, it does look really offensively creepy, original Amy. Like, like you just... just if, if you woke up and had that at the end of your bed at night, you'd be like, right, never sleeping again, ever. Cheers, thanks, bye. Yeah. <laughs> just looking at this picture, I'm pretty sure I'm not sleeping again. It's yeah. like just, you and uh, the... From Big Trouble in Little China... Lopan? Yeah, Lopan with the with the yeah. finger. <laughs> this is going to be my Lopan with the finger. There's a marketing image on here. Just scroll down a little bit. Mm -hmm. That looks kind of like they were Walking Dead selling it. Well, see, that to me looks like Buffy. 
Okay. She's dying to meet the new neighbor, and it's Imogen Poots with a battle axe. Buffy's been known to use a battle axe. Yes, she has. She has, indeed. Last I checked. <laughs> in fact, uh, Ed in this film gets killed with a uh, battle, or uh, gets um, nearly killed with a battle axe, and uh, doesn't he get, um, like, that gets used earlier in the uh, film when they're doing the backyard wrestling? Mm. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. Yeah. So, 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 yeah, I mean, like the, the, the new Amy, they don't go one louder. In fact, if anything, they make her very kind of bland and acceptable for modern day audiences. And um, now, fair play to them. They kind of pay a neat little homage to the original Amy. But to get... Dress. Yeah, but to get that that real like shake people up way of, of doing it. Like I don't like it, but the evil dead remake really goes balls out to do way more than the original evil dead in terms of shitting up its audience. Oh yeah. And yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of glad they didn't go for like all out sadism and it's just kind of like, well, scary face. And then, you know, he, he, he gets away from her. Uh, but it, it feels like they it feels like they undershot with with this version of Amy and, and and a lot of it could simply just be down to the fact that they were they were working with digital tools which homogenize. It may, there may also have been an element of um, um, hmm, I don't know whether this is going to sound patronizing to modern audiences. She has to come back and how much can you push this here she's this horrendous horrible teeth beast mm. to oh, okay now she's back to being Amy and we have to accept her back as being like the normal girl it's the same, it's the same problem that uh, the remake just kept running into which is that they wanted to be the anti-Twilight but they were afraid to be not sexy mm. yeah true true I'll give it that um, okay so let's do another juxtaposition uh, of uh, uh, old and new that would be uh, Roddy McDowell and David Tennant <laughs> as uh, Peter Vincent. I've been saving this one. Well, now, Charlie, you saw that. Are you convinced now that Mr. Dandridge is not a vampire? It can't be. But, but, but Charlie, you saw it. Now, you know as well as I do that no vampire can drink blessed water. And it wasn't blessed. Are you calling me a liar, young man? If he's not a vampire, have him touch this. Oh, Charlie. Well, that moment doesn't work in audio only. You've made a fool of yourself once. There's no reason to compound the error. Yes, Charlie. You've already caused your friends quite enough pain. And you're finally convinced I'm not a vampire either. Right? Yes. Well, I'm glad that's settled. So, I'm the expert for your vampire thing, huh? Right. Well, uh, I know your show's an illusion. Yeah, fair enough. But say I, say I wanted to kill a vampire. <laughs> yeah, sorry, go on. How would, I, how would I go about doing that? You want to know how to kill a vampire? Seriously? Yeah. Kill a vampire. Well, let's think. Um, well, you got fire. Beheading. Um, you can make them a big garlicky omelette. <laughs> All go traditional. Stake through the heart. Bam! Cool, so, so that stuff really works? Well, 
No, not the omelettes. Uh, in the original version, he actually reminded me of, uh, of Grandpa Fred in Gremlins 2. Yeah. And there's actually a bit later in the thing when he he, he stops showing vampire movies and shows alien movies, because that's what kids are into now. And it's like, the attack of the octopus people. Yes. I, and I, I and then in Gremlins 2, Grandpa's like, the attack yeah, of the, the octopus, octopus people. people. <laughs> and then he and then he says to Billy, you know, kids, people watching scary movies at three in the morning are not scared of the wolf man. And he's he's faced his own obsolescence. So it's kind of like Peter Vincent's got a ticking clock, even though he has sort of come back at the end of the first Fright Night. He's still a, a an unsexy Elvira. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Now, one thing I will say that I absolutely adored about this performance is Roddy McDowell does so much with his face. So much mm-hmm. acting happens just in facial expression, particularly when Charlie first shows up and he keeps stepping away and you just see his facial expressions change as Charlie is talking. And it is just wonderful to watch. I love that bit and I love kind of all of the bits. It's so very it. subtle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Roddy McDowell's Peter Vincent is an- another one who you give a really, he, they give a really interesting arc to this character as. He's learning to actually be the person that he pretends to be. And I again, I love watching this happen because it's very subtle and very gradual. But over the course of the film, you really do get a sense of I can be a better person than I was. Uh, whereas Tennant also goes through that, but his is a lot more, a lot quicker. He kind of has one bad experience and he's like, no, I'm going to be a better person now. Mm. Whereas McDowell is a very gradual change. David Tennant, for me, was the uh, inspired choice. I really like Roddy McDowell in uh, the Planet of the Apes movies. He's got uh, a, a, a very sweet-natured charm to him. Uh, I love the fact that he's kind of pathetic as uh, uh, Peter Vincent. And, and yeah. he Did they have the subtext of um, that his family were killed by a vampire in the original? No. 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 No, yeah, he, he didn't think that vampires were real. In fact, even by the end, he's like, well, that's how it works in the movies. Yeah, yeah. No, so it's a, it's a different character because David Tennant's one has had a run-in with a vampire. Did it turn out to, in fact, be Jerry? It did, yes. which I hate that stuff. I despise yeah. it when movies just decide that, oh, yeah, the threat that we're facing right now is the exact threat that you're, that's in your backstory. Didn't Wouldn't you know? it actually be better in those kind of movies where it's like, well, I want to destroy this vampire, and then it feels like I'll be sort of laying to rest this other vampire that I uh, allowed to get away. It, Isn't that more of a human story than being able to roundly destroy your very own arch nemesis? Yeah, it, it allows yes. the thing you're going after now to be symbolic. Yeah, yeah. because... Symbolic in a very can, specific way, but yeah. symbolic nevertheless. We face symbolic things we have to overcome all the time that actually allow us to make peace sometimes. Not all, We don't face them and make peace all the time, but like we encounter them within our lives. So yeah, that is a much yeah. stronger storyline, yeah. and uh, it particularly doesn't work here because it has no effect on anything. Mm. Like Peter, like Peter Vincent doesn't stop shooting him or have a moment of reflection when he realizes that this was the vampire who killed his family. It doesn't change his behavior in any way, shape, or form. So why did it have to be in there? Yeah. Uh, what, was, what was the movie that also did that I was talking about, babe? I can't remember what it is now. There was another one that did something similar that I'm just like, why? Oh, uh, Spectre? Oh, yeah, Spectre. It's, I, I really despise the I'm the author of all your pain trope. 
it draws, I think, honestly, from Moriarty, which, mm. you know, in the, in the stories, he's in one story, and he talks about, oh, but all of these cases, I was really behind them. It's like, why? There's no evidence to suggest that. You just threw that in to make this guy seem more threatening from an entire, with it cheaply, without mm. having to lay the groundwork. I mean, at the very oh. least, Judge Doom is, there's back, there's something there to set that up by the time it happens in Roger Rabbit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and the, the one of the reasons that it really pulls the rug out of, uh, from under the Vincent character in this one is that the way that the conclusion of the film plays out, he doesn't get to kill Jerry. If he'd got to kill Jerry, mm. then that might have made it worthwhile because then you're basically setting it up as a revenge story. Yeah. But actually, his, like, like we said, symbolic, his battle is, I was terrified of vampires. Mm. I have now overcome that to a degree and become a bit less of, of, uh, afraid of vampires and at least able to stand up to mm. Them. Yeah. Hence his room being a panic room, and that yeah. that that's symbolically the panic room he's always exactly. in. Exactly, and it's and, and like I said, you've you've got this sort of in terms of it being deconstructive of um, of, of fake masculinity. The the real him is this tiny little locked room in the middle. Mm. The yeah. fake him is this massive. Uh, building with fancy walls and women drifting in and out constantly who can't stand him I might add she's brilliant oh, I, I love great. that little scene Ginger is one mm. of my favourite parts of that movie <coughs> yeah, yeah it, it's, it's he says I don't want to be a man like me mm. yeah yeah and yet he is he goes and bees a ma- bees yeah. <laughs> he goes and is is a man like him every night on stage yeah yeah, it feels like they, they introduced him a little bit too late and didn't go to the full extent that they could have with his character. It, it's perfectly fine for him to be the one who actually ends up just you know, landing the killing blow and saving the day and going, you know what, this one's absolutely personal and I've got to do this. Mm. Charlie ends up being exceptionally brave in how he ends up taking out Jerry. That's, it's, a, it's a far above uh, uh, how uh, Charlie does it in the original. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. We are forgetting to mention Ed, who finally comes back in the uh, uh, original Fright Night. He goes, Oh, he got me, Charlie. He bit me. Uh, you, you know what you're going to have to do now, don't you? Kill me. Kill me, Charlie. Before I turn into a vampire and give you a hickey. <laughs> you asshole. You really believe me, you poor dope? You're gonna get you someday. Oh, yeah, when? When I'm bit by a vampire? There are no such things as vampires, fruitcake! And like he plays a joke on Charlie, and then they're like, oh, stupid Ed. And then Charlie walks off with Amy, and then Ed gets got by a vampire anyway. It's kind of like, well, that was uh, prescient. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a good thing his but, nickname was Evil Ed, because if he didn't mm. turn into a vampire, then that just would have been just dogged him the rest of his life. <laughs> he would have been like also, Evil Ed the insurance salesman. Yeah, or if his nickname had been Good Ed, then mm. he'd have been really stuck, because it would have been so misleading. Yeah. <laughs> but... That early version of Ed's beef seems to be more with Peter Vincent. He tracks down Vincent uh, one-to-one and then gets burned in the face. And then um, it's Vincent versus a wolf who is Ed later on in the uh, in the house. And they really go to town on these wolf effects. Like after he, uh, Vincent stabs uh, a, a, an, an obvious, like, 
proper wolf. It then turns into a wolf puppet flailing about on the ground. And then this really grotesque wolf <laughs> creature man thing. That took uh, 18 uh, hours in the makeup chair. And they almost makes... glued his mouth shut. Oh Jesus. Like they, they were trying might... to pour stuff into his mouth to make it foamy. And they accidentally mm-hmm. put uh, dental glue in there. Jesus. So they, so they almost glued the actor's mouth shut doing this event. Well, not nice. Incompetent. Yeah, terrible. Yes. <laughs> Very bad. Yeah. Suing needed to happen there. No, but... So all those tears, I'm assuming, are real. Well, indeed. <laughs> I, I had to laugh, though, when we were watching that bit, because it was like, wow, that looks like a real wolf. Is that a real wolf or is that a husky? Oh, that's a puppet. <laughs> but they... they... <clears throat> they play up the pity side of Ed in, in both of them, actually. Uh, so, like, as soon as he's a vampire, he becomes this, like, yeah, starts off as dangerous and gleeful with it, and then ends up this pitiful, dying creature that you can't help but feel sorry for. Mm. So, it's, it's, it almost becomes an after school special of this is a boy named Ed who made all the wrong choices. <laughs> he ended up becoming a werewolf. Don't be like Ed. <laughs> um... <laughs> the master will kill you for this, but not fast. Slowly. Oh, so slowly. Back. Ah. I say back. Ah. No, I, I do think part of the point of that is that it, uh, in both versions, Ed gets kind of, it's not cut off at his prime by any stretch of the imagination, but he is denied an opportunity to develop further. Mm. Ed one is never allowed to hit the point where he suddenly realises, oh, actually, I am going to grow up after all. Mm. Never that, makes his own that's, decisions. That's another thing as well. That the, the whole sort of being friends with people who are your age, because that's how you're forced to interact at school, it, it gets really complicated when you're all hitting that stage of suddenly realising that there's more to life than being who you are right now. Um, and you're all hitting it at different times. And that is is kind of part of Ed's tragedy, that Charlie is on a path that he is unable or unwilling to follow. He's removed from the, the possibility of ever reaching that point and catching up with him. And Ed, too, it's it's sort of he has no opportunity at redemption except that he does because he gets that tiny little moment at the very end, which I think really makes this Ed 2 is much less tragic than Ed 1 mm-hmm. for that reason. Yeah. Uh, with the Ed, again, uh, going back to the idea that he's essentially been seduced by, in, by toxic masculinity, he starts performing toxic masculinity, but he's still a dork. He's basic. Yeah. He's, he's your basic Twitter troll in many ways, you know, mm. in the sense that he is trying to perform this action of what he believes a man should be, and it's very corrosive to kind of everybody and everything around him. But you can tell he's putting on a part. He's still he's still a dork. Mm. He really is. He's still. He just, he's going through the motions. He will never be Jerry, which is what he's trying to be. Yeah. He thinks he's Jerry, though. Well, he thinks, it's not he thinks he's Jerry, he thinks he can be Jerry if he tries hard enough. Yeah. Yeah. 
But like those, uh, like those studio executives trying to make a sequel to a horror film that get the wrong elements, don't understand which elements were the ones that worked. That's what he's doing. He is getting the raw. He's picking the bat, the worst parts of Jerry, and just putting them on like a costume. And as a result, it comes off as inauthentic and kind of pathetic. Yeah. There is one moment when um, the Ed, uh, when he faces down Charlie, because his beef is with Charlie, and Charlie actually has to kill him himself. And that is a significant moment, because he has to kill his own best friend um, and effectively lay to rest this immature past of his, um, dead and buried now with Adam and, and, uh, and Ed. And it's, it's, it's there's not much to it more than that, aside from the fact that when he finally stakes him after the, you know Ed's been goading him and seems to be not the least bit conflicted about hurting and killing his uh, his old friend, Ed uh, whispers as he's staked, "It's okay, it's okay, Charlie. I had to go back and check the um, uh, subtitles, but Ed is being released into the cosmos, and there's this that there is a moment when Ed stops being performative for one moment." and just uh, is overcome with an emotional response and then dies. Mm -hmm. That's what I meant about, that's to me why yeah. he is less tragic than, than Ed Wan. Hmm. Um, although... Less tragic? I'd yeah. say that's more tragic because well, there's more to him then. But, Ed but, Wan just comes off as this, this really stupid, frightened kid. But no, that's my point. When he dies, he's scared. Yeah. He dies terrified. And that is that just struck me as being so, so sad. Except for the fact that at the very end, there's this sort of like Thanos coming to collect his Infinity Gem. Well, like yes. there's yeah. a, like red eyes light up next door and it's like, Oh, you're so cool, Brewster! It's like, what are you even saying here? We saw him die. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, and Amy came back, so why the fuck wouldn't he? It doesn't make any sense. But the, the death of Ed 2, he has that moment where he is he is genuine and is authentic for a moment. Mm. And that's that acceptance of, of where he is and where he's going next. Mm. Um, like I said, it, it, it saves him yeah. in a bigger sense. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, and oh, there's one other thing. The the Chris Sarandon version has a painting of his old dead wife. Which... Please dress like my sexy dead wife. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, was something Chris Sarandon did to give um, to make Jerry more um, relatable, yeah. as far as he was concerned. That was his his decision to do that. It's uh, it's the same in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula that came way afterwards, and uh, Highlander Three, the one with Deborah Kara Unger. Because she's a, in a painting of uh, one of Connor's sexy dead wives. Yeah. Uh, Jerry has three paintings of sexy dead wives on oh, yeah? his walls. Yeah. And the the first one looks a little bit like the girl that he brings home for first, and the second one oh, looks right. a bit a little bit like the girl he brings home second, and then the third one looks a little bit like Amy. My first wife was Elizabeth Bathory. Didn't turn out too well. <laughs> second wife, Princess Buttercup. That also didn't turn out well. <laughs> She had this ridiculous pirate boyfriend. Came a cropper to this rum cove. <laughs> Third wife made out of jam. Fourth wife. <laughs> Fourth wife on a reticulate. Yes. Sixth wife to outer, outer space. space. <laughs> oh, another thing that the original one has that this uh, <laughs> sequel uh, the, that The Fright Night never attempts is The, the Familiar. There's this uh, guy who hangs around with Jerry. His name's Billy. 
clearly not a vampire, and he's his helper. He's the the guy who like drags in coffins and stuff, deals with day visitors, packs them badly, packs them badly. Jets his mail, buys him turtlenecks. Then at the end, he's like advancing towards Charlie up the stairs, and Charlie starts to like. Is he shooting him with crossbow bolts or something? No, it was with the gun. It was Peter Vincent with the gun. In the gun. Okay. Because <laughs> then he starts melting green pus out of his sleeves. And it's like, okay, so is he human or is he not? We don't know. Now he's exploded. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently the scene where they're, was it Charlie and Peter are facing the camera and Billy's walking up behind them was inspired by several shots from Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Mm. And I grew up on that movie, so I'm like, okay, I know what shots you're talking about. <laughs> However, the uh, actual the gag, the stare gag, is from Hold That Ghost, another Abbott and Costello film. All right. Either way, I've watched both of those. Those are phenomenal movies. I think one of the things that I really love about The Fright Night is how um, the setting makes this work so well. Yeah, it's the suburbs, but it's a suburb in a transient neighborhood where most people work at night. They say it in the movie that, you know, this is Vegas, you know, nobody lives here. Yeah, so yeah. the idea, so he can very much get away with killing pretty mercilessly, and it's not going to be noticed because people come and go all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I was going to say that actually he should just go to Vegas. People die on the strip all the time, yeah. or just, just off Vegas. But, uh, yeah, you're right. The, the, the fact that no one's really hanging around focusing... Like, the fact that the neighborhoods are quiet at night because everyone's working, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. And it's a, it is a, a really satisfying conclusion once they actually... They, they, they man up, as it were, and decide to go and save Amy and, and bring back their woman folk. And in the case of Peter Vincent's, um, restore his honor... I think, like, uh, the original Peter Vincent, it's kind of a, um, I think it, after evil tracks him down, he decides he's got to do something about this. Mm, yeah. and he's, he's faced, the, the, the Peter Vincent one is faced with the thing that he always assumed was fictional yeah. is actually real. Peter Vincent two is faced with the thing that he always thought was terrifying and insurmountable actually might not be. Yeah. And uh, he's a, a crappy Vegas magician of the uh, uh, Chris Angel type. Am I right there? Yeah. With the, yes. With roughly what he's. Yeah. So he's all like showmanship and like lots of rings of fire and a black eye makeup and leather pants. Leather pants, and he behaves like a rock star. He reminds me of nobody more than Russell Brand. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, Russell Brand could probably could have played, played the same it, guy, yeah. but. Um, and I would say, but he probably wouldn't be capable of the actual dramatic performance. But I really like Arthur. Another rem- like another pair of films that I like the original and I really like the uh, the remake and right. you know the, the the standard response is well the original's brilliant and the remake is terrible mm-hmm. on on both of these and and I, I I heartily disagree I think that they are both very relevant and that both um, both Arthurs again have a fantastic central performance and you get Helen Mirren and is it. So John Gielgud yeah. in in the uh, yeah. the original, uh, which you know that's the emotional glue that really powers it through. The one person who believes in him, and uh, yeah, the, we, I watched them for the first time ever, both together, and I think that might actually be a way of seeing 
remakes. Like, if you can just avoid seeing films forever until the remake comes out <laughs> yeah. and then see them both together. Well, then I should probably see the original Thomas Crown Affair. You yeah. Should. Yeah. You should. Faye Dunaway so, is amazing in it. I, I liked her a lot better than Rene Russo. And I would mention, since you brought up Russell Brand, I, I quite like uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Get Him to the Greek. He plays plays the same character in both of mm. those, and I himself, more or less, yes. Yeah. But yeah. he does have he does have heart in both of those movies, and mm. you do there are things you do like about him, or at least that I liked about him in both of those mm. movies. Yeah. And in an era of Logan Paul, this obnoxious guy isn't quite so obnoxious anymore. Yeah. Yeah. At least he doesn't have a death <laughs> fetish. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um. In the original uh, uh, version of Fright Night, they kind of break into Jerry's home and they bring a bunch of vampire weapons. And Jerry seems to be quite a coward. He's getting everyone to attack for him. And he's like hiding behind walls and going with his big face. Yeah. <laughs> and they depower their villain like uh, inadvertently by doing that. They don't make him this stalking, baleful presence. They make him this um, sniveling coward who gets everyone else to take the hit for him. Mm. The new Jerry seems to be like not attacking because he knows he's going to win. He's like sort of smugly sitting there going, eh, that's fine. You carry on, walk into my zombie pit and then hits him with the uh, the, the little pebble that uh, <laughs> then draws blood just enough to get the feral uh, z- zombies out. And then comes a cropper because of sunlight and uh, um, Anton Yelchin actually having the, the insanity and balls to set himself on fire as part of his entrapment. The sunlight coming in and exp- them exploding and actually some of the other creature effects really remind me of From Dust Till Dawn, one of my other absolute favorite mm-hmm. uh, vampire movies. And that's stuck in my head, the idea that when the sun comes up, the monsters will go away and you'll be fine. Specifically with this, though, and, and it, it is in the same in From Dust Till Dawn, to mm. the point where I would actually not be surprised if the ending of From Dust Till Dawn and the effect, the creature's look, yeah. um, is a, an homage to, to this. Yeah. Um, with all the shafts of sunlight that come in and then you have to smash windows to yeah, actually exactly. create yeah. more now, the, blasts. The, the very clear metaphor in that for me is that they defeat Jerry in the end by going into his subconscious and letting light in mm-hmm. and shining a light on all of those deeply buried subconscious um complexes and neuroses and actually examining them and being genuine about them and that's how they all you know the 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 bits that are still useful come back to life and are rescued Mm. the bits that aren't get destroyed yeah it seems to be there's definite homosexual undertones with him in the in fright night one Especially between him and his familiar, whatever the familiar and is. Billy. And Billy, yeah. yeah. The non-specific monster that Billy is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, both of them pretty much end the same. Oh, actually, no, they don't. Because uh, in the uh, original version, it's like, isn't it great now that I got my girlfriend back and now me and Amy are having sex and I'm a much more well-adjusted boy and he's just a, a better version of himself at the beginning. And it's like, hey, you're, yeah, good, okay, have sex, that's fine. Yeah. And then there's the, uh, you know, the, the weird evil Ed's still alive, you're so cool, booster bit. Whereas in the, in the Fright Night, they're having sex round at Peter Vincent's house. <laughs> Ew. But they, they're that probably must look staged. like a Jackson Pollock that <laughs> <made>. <laughs> well, they, I think they, 
the original is kind of that reasserting of the the suburban heteronormative um you know you want to get yourself a girlfriend mate that'll make everything but he starts normal. off with a girlfriend i know but sort he still of. has to sort of overcome all of these deep-seated fears and, mm. and things um whereas the the remake does have that element of okay we know it's not like that anymore. It would be totally disingenuous of us to say he's going to just go back to his girlfriend and back to his, his nice, normal, straight life. Mm. Uh, now let's throw a bit of kink in there just to make it clear that, that he is it, part of, of Charlie 2's growth and maturity Charlie. is opening up to and embracing the idea that there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than you... That's how you read that? David Tennant sniffing around their love bed and going, can I get in on that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, you know, wouldn't say no, wouldn't say no. (laughs) There you go then. Be, be, what's the word? Cosmopolitan in your tastes. Be more open-minded. Honest about what might appeal to you rather than necessarily going this is the template that people have told me I must like Mm. therefore I will follow this blindly and get freaked out when I get turned on by something that isn't in that folder indeed there is a subtext of um, be more attentive to your friends as well yeah and be more attentive to your girlfriend well I mean Amy Amy, oftentimes Amy comes off more as his friend than his girlfriend in the original version and um there are times when like when she, I, I really like her rapport with his mum as well she do they chat away and it's like they're very easy with each other so so that it does feel like that that idea of family is there but that at the beginning charlie is drifting away from that and at the end charlie is attentive but also at the beginning a new vampire just moved in at the end i just killed a vampire so like next next week a hunchback moves in and i'm all <laughs> not <laughs> It's just a man with a hunchback. He's not the hunchback. Speaking speaking of Amy's relationship to um, to Charlie's mum, actually, one of the things I really liked um, that uh, uh, Tony Collette pulled off was the um, at the beginning of the film. It's almost like my son. I'm really proud of my son. He has a hot girlfriend. sweet scene where um where she t- she comes around after charlie's tried to break up with her amy comes around that is and she's basically like you're not getting rid of me that easily um that's we've, we've got something good going here you don't just walk away from that without at least trying to to reconcile it and tony collette stood on the stairs kind of like oh she's sweet she can stay <laughs> 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 and that's that's nice because it's it's like you know she's not just I want Charlie to to tick the box of the hot girlfriend because it it means I don't have to worry about whether or not he's going to grow up weird. It's he's actually got somebody who cares about mm. him and is and is looking beyond the the superficial. Yeah. Um, which frankly, more parents should want for their children. Yeah. 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 By and large, I really enjoy the original, and uh, it's it's got some some really memorable uh, effects and it's really tight as well both of them are really tight they are both precisely one hour and 46 minutes long each really so <laughs> all of that stuff that happens in uh, twilight the, the in twilight all of that extra Ooh, stuff that sorry. happens in the well it's got a night in it hasn't it yes so all of that extra stuff that happens in the fright night hang on twilight doesn't have a night in it it has a light in it <laughs> <laughs> 
Like at night? It's got an eight. <laughs> okay, so. So all of the st- extra stuff that happens in uh, The Fright Night and you feel like, wow, they, they packed in a load extra. That's because they got down to business a lot quicker and there was a lot less fucking around with Charlie going, is he a vampire? Is he not a vampire? Let me talk to my friend Evil about it. Yeah. And just Charlie and Amy chatting away. At, I'm kind of... like the, the, the fact that it's precisely the same length to me suggests that it was really trying to be faithful to the original and they they didn't elaborate on it too much in a way that uh um changes the story at its core but it does make it more complex not as complex as it could have been as a story we've already discussed that there are there were ways they could have branched out a little further Mm. uh but but it, it seems to be a very faithful uh adaptation now it's really sad that the uh, original director turns out didn't like it. Uh, Chris Sarandon was offered a role in the 2011 remake and chose to pass on the torch by doing a cameo as the man who's eaten by Jerry. Sarandon pointed out it's not the original and they didn't set out to make the original, but the cast and crew of the remake were all huge fans. That much is very apparent. Farrell had, Colin Farrell had watched the film countless times during his youth and publicly stated, I heard there were a remake in Freud Night and I went, ah, God, remake, Hollywood, so dull. And I read the script and I really hoped I didn't like it. And I read, uh, and I did. Recalled <laughs> Sarandon at the first encounter with Farrell. I, I really hoped I wouldn't like it, but I did. Uh, Sarandon recalled the first encounter with Farrell. He walked in and he was literally, was almost shaking. He was so excited at the prospect of meeting his childhood idol. He gave me a beautiful bottle of wine and a DVD set of Carl Dreyer vampire and it was I was it was really graceful and wonderful introduction okay that sounds like Jerry yeah that sounds like something Jerry would say but it's also really sweet of Colin Farrell to go like you know I'm, I'm playing this role and I'm, I'm doing it different and but he wanted to be respectful during a reunion panel discussion at Monsterpalooza in 2012 a year afterwards the cast of the original film discussed the remake at length Beers commented that as a standalone horror movie, it was uh, very well done. It didn't lessen uh, the appeal of the original. It was just more of a one-note film. Jeffries only watched the first 20 minutes and then turned it off. Stark and Ragsdale went to a screening and discovered they were the only two people in attendance. Yeah, nobody went to see this film. That's not the film's fault. Ragsdale liked an early draft of the screenplay. This is uh, the original Charlie. Uh, But he wasn't particularly enamored with the final result and was perplexed that there was kind of a nastiness to the evil Ed character. The discussion dragged on for so long that the audience roared with laughter when Sarandon sarcastically interrupted Ragsdale to declare, I'm sure there are some other questions about the original Fright Night. When asked his thoughts in 2015, creator Tom Holland replied, kudos to them on every level for their professionalism, but they forgot the humour and the heart. You're wrong. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, Tom, you're wrong. This film has humour and heart. It's a different sense of humour. It's a different kind of heart, but it's definitely there. They should have called it something other than Fright Night because it has no more than a passing resemblance to the original. Again, you're wrong. You're too close to it. Yeah. It's really faithful. What they did to Jerry Dandridge and Peter Vincent was criminal. It is a a different path to take with uh, both those characters, but you couldn't really deliver both of those guys as they are again now. Oh. In 2011, they would feel like relics. They felt like relics in the original Fright Night. And what would be the point? Yeah. What's the point in doing it shot for shot, beat for beat, character Just Van for Zandt. character? You, <laughs> yeah. you, don't, 
you achieve? You don't get anything new. Why would you bother doing it? Because of the fact that they elaborated in some ways and that they're slightly, you know, that they're slightly better in a lot of ways, but there was so much charm still in the original. That allows both of these films to exist next to each other in this wonderful yin-yang harmony in that you can watch both and enjoy the heck out of both for, for different reasons and in different ways, but still feel like you're watching the same core story told through different lenses. Mm, yeah. That Which is way better than just, like the Italian job with Mark Wahlberg, I fucking hate. But, but that is that is essentially what monster movies are. It's the same story told through different lenses, mm. told through different perspectives, told at different times, which means that the, the accoutrements and the, um, the circumstances have to become contemporized because otherwise it's no longer relevant. A, a horror story that's um, about a group of people in the 1600s you, you've got to really work hard to make that relevant to a modern audience. Mm. At my screening of The Witch, just as the credits rolled with that just amazing, bone-chilling ending, some guy yelled from the back row, Well, that was fucking shit! They did, <laughs> but, but it didn't, it didn't, it struggled to connect with modern audience. But I do think there was a lot in there that, that you had to really look past all of the the setting and the costumes and the language and the characters and everything yeah. to get to what was at the core of it. Yeah. Um, and, and they made their audience work hard. And sometimes you can pull that off. Um, but I think if you're going to uh, deliver horror and have it serve its purpose, you've got to make it relevant to the people who are watching it. Because mm. if it doesn't connect with them... It's not gonna. It's not gonna achieve anything, and that's so it has to connect with the people who are making it. The thing I said to Karu when after we had watched the original, because I had not seen the original until a couple nights ago, and but I saw the I saw the remake in the theater and really enjoyed it. And I said my impression is I can count. I I'm not. I didn't like the original all that much. The things I think are good about that movie, I can count on one hand. The things I think are bad about the remake, I can count on one hand. Yeah. But they're not the same things. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And those are the dots in the yin yang. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's one of those. If you, if they tried too hard to make the remake just like the original, what they would have ended up with was Fright Night Two. Yeah. 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 Which was literally the same thing as the original, except Jerry was a bird. Uh, yeah. Fright Night 2011 cost $30 million and made $41 million worldwide. That's terrible in movie terms. It's especially terrible in horror movie terms, where the multiplier is always supposed to be a lot higher. I think it probably didn't help that, um, Tom, that, that this wasn't popular. If it had been popular and everyone had been talking about the original Fright Night, Tom Holland probably would have gone, yeah, you know what? This has actually brought more love and attention to uh, this this film that I did, and uh, I'm 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 pleased that this film exists in the way that um, what came out recently that did that that people were suddenly really into the idea of the original. Hold on, there's one specific film I'm thinking of. Oh, it! Everyone was talking about the friggin' Tim Curry it over and over again with this uh, with, with the new one that came out. The Tim Curry it. My God, did it get its refocusing and interest and in people sort of you know. And I was sat it. there going, "Hang on a minute!" I was always under the impression I was the only person who'd seen this. Yeah, apparently, yeah. loads of people saw it on TV. 
So, uh, but I can inv- imagine a, ver- uh, a version of history where Tom Holland sits down at a bus stop uh, next to Max Brooks, and uh, he's like, "What's that? Hollywood fucked me. Yep, me too." So I'm assuming, says Max Brooks, that uh, you know the, the the film had none of the characters of your book. Well, it had all the characters of my film. Yes, I suppose it had none of the events of your uh, the original text. Well, it had most of the events. Okay, so I suppose it, it uh, had completely different monsters. So, like, they weren't even vampires anymore. They were, like, these, like, pogo fast stick, vampires. fast vampire-like <laughs> things. Okay, well, they, they were pretty much the same vampires with the same kind of powers. So I suppose it was all focused on one brand new character that was nothing to do with your original book. It just seeming like a cipher to make Brad Pitt seem you know more important than he actually could possibly ever be and he's like well no it was still kind of like charlie and i suppose it was like hollow and empty and heartless and hateful and and soulless and dull and other words that are bad Uh, and and just a perfunctory fast zombie movie that, that uh, you know effectively the only thing that was the same was that it was also called Fright Night. You know what? Thank you, Max Brooks. You've just put it in perspective to me. Says Tom Holland. <laughs> World War Z is how you completely fuck an adaptation by introducing the world and the concept of the book to the general public that had not yet experienced the book and changing the world and changing the concept so that it becomes something else entirely and not a good something. So for example, M. Night Shyamalan comes up and goes, oh, hey guys, how are you doing? And they're like, oh, Ah. you're the guy who completely twisted the last airbender in the eyes of the public. It'd be the equivalent of a movie studio taking the new century license and making something very close to pride and prejudice and zombies, thus destroying any chance new century would ever have of captivating people on the big screen. Fuck that movie. As it is, because Fright Night wasn't popular, it kind of just sort of sits there. The Fright Night, that is. But then again, the original Fright Night wasn't like a wild success either. It was um, $24 million on a $9.25 million uh, budget, which is great for a horror movie. But it didn't, uh, it, it didn't like reach Evil Dead levels of um, adoration. It never quite hit the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street level of contemporary appeal. Freddy Krueger being the literal zeitgeist, the spirit of the age of 80s horror. But, I mean, would you really want Fright Night to to, to end up with a a Fright Night Part 8? Where it's gotten very silly and no one really gives a toss what they're doing anymore. It's been a completely brand new cast four times over now. And this newcomer director who's just this workaday guy who's just going to do what the studio tells him to do and knock out another sequel on a lower and lower budget to lower and lower critical acclaim. The law of diminishing returns writ large, and he does exactly that. And the only people who care anymore are die-hard Fright Night fans compiling their wikis at home, and it's pre-internet, so they're just writing them on sheets of lined paper, keeping track of that complicated Fright Night continuity. Oh, I was just going to say, no, definitely not. Something that Tom Holland should remember is he's doing a deconstruction, and it's a deconstruction slash, you know, tribute. A, a tribute, and I'm like, that is always going to be something of a niche audience, yeah. especially of of something that is a fairly niche fan base anyway, especially back then. Yeah, he was specifically making a movie for people that were disappointed that they no longer make these movies. Yeah, and they no longer make these movies because there weren't that many people around at the time who loved <laughs> who loved those yeah. movies anymore. The Ed is probably closer to anybody who anybody who made the original Fright Night. 
Mm. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, the yes, the new one's a deconstruction, but it's a deconstruction of much broader themes. Mm. And there's, I think there's a lot more you can glean out of in terms of psychology and et cetera, I would say, out of the remake than there is out of the original. Yeah. I mean, even today, people, a lot of people, I'd say most people have not seen the Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Hammer horror films that uh, Fright Night was drawing from so heavily and referencing so heavily. They don't make it easy. In this country, you can't buy the Christopher Lee Dracula unless you buy it in like a very expensive version or in a box set with a whole bunch of other Hammer Horrors. Like that, that, that was a film that should have been sold in inexpensive vanilla versions so that people could really catch Christopher Lee doing Dracula. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, refusing to do that makes that thing bleed away. Yeah, and if anything, that's doubly worse considering that Hammer Horror films were meant to be cheap British horror films that they could make when they couldn't have access to American ones. Yeah. The, the, the whole point of them was that they were cheap and British and easy to get, easy to make. If you yeah. guys can't get them cheaply, that seems like a inversion of the ethos of Hammer Horror. Yeah. <laughs> they sweated them. Yeah. Mr. Vincent, hi. I'm, I'm from the Vegas Sun. We had an appointment today. I don't think so. Fix my guy. No, no, we did. I'm, I'm doing that, that article, Vampire Separating Myth from Fact. So, is this what? Your first assignment or something? Yeah. Hmm. I'm going to pop your cherry. And he did. So on that exploding vampire-sized bombshell, where can folks find your stuff, guys? You can find us, uh, we're at sequentially-yours.com. Uh, where I talk about comic books and the two of us talk about comic book based movies together and a lot of deconstructions and examination of themes and comparisons to the original books in case of movies. And I've just found that uh, Tom Holland directed Thinner, the uh, oh. Gypsy Curse movie. <laughs> My God. Okay. You can find a whole bunch of goodies on our Patreon right now at the $5 bonus level. This last month has included quick reviews of Isle of Dogs, Blockers, Ghost Stories, A Quiet Place, Love, Simon, and Murder on the Orient Express, plus 80 more minutes of Infinity War talk. And our special $15 sponsors get an enthusiastic shout-out each week, so a huge extra thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Rune Lord Firionel, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Avril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Shisham. This episode was made possible with the commission of Brendan Agnew and N. Scott G., who went halves on it. We covered both movies for the price of one because it just seemed the right thing to do. Especially as the remake is one of our favourite appearances of the late, great Anton Yelchin. And we will never get one of those again. He will always be missed. Next week, we delve into another fading 80s gem with the never-ending story. So, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
my friend Tony, when uh, DVDs first started becoming a thing, just stocked up on dramas. He got things like... Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> That's a cat who doesn't like drama. 